Job chapter 2 is where we turn this morning. I said Job 3. We'll get to Job 3. But Job 2, we need to finish up just a few thoughts in that chapter where Job is greeted and comforted and consoled by certain fellows. You remember, of course, the trials, the difficulties he's gone through in chapter 1 and chapter 2, this contest that was not an idea of Satan. It was an idea of God himself to prove that God is good, that he is righteous, that he is sovereign, that he has authority over all things. And, by the way, that Job is a sinless, blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil kind of guy. That There's nothing that that made Job deserve the treatment that he got. Satan had the accusation back in chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, does Job fear God without cause? Isn't there a reason? God, don't you have to buy off or bribe anyone that would follow after you? I mean, you're not worthy to follow. You're not worthy to worship, Satan says to God, which is, it's amazing that God did not strike him right there. Do not even go to the lake of, of uh, or to the, the chasm, Revelation 20. You're going to go right to the lake of fire and brimstone. You're going to go right there. But God allowed Satan to continue his work because God receives glory in these things. God receives the admiration. He receives the affection of Job and even of his friends that we'll see. So all this contest, all this tribulation that came upon Job, the loss of his livestock, loss of his children, loss of his servants, loss of his wealth, just gone in an instant, Satan says, that's not enough. That wasn't an adequate test because, sure, somebody, anybody will give whatever outside of them for the sake of their own lives. You know, skin for skin, uh, he said in chapter 2. And so Satan says, well, touch his, his bone and his flesh and it will curse you to your face. And so God said, yes, you may do that. And so we studied last time that how, how Job was touched, not in a, in a kind, gracious way, but touched with terrible, verse 7, chapter 2, terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. Painful, ouch, kind of situation he was going through. And he would go in verse 8, taking a potsherd to scrape himself to find some relief, maybe for itching, maybe to uh, remove the, the boils and the infection that he had or whatever, just trying to find some measure of relief while he was sitting among the ashes. Just mourning, lamenting, taking his identification with the dust of the earth, realizing I'm but dust, all these kind of situations that are going on. Last time, we looked at verses 9 and 10, the the words of his wife to himself and his response. But the words, Job had a good response. I won't rehearse the whole thing. Verse 10, you can read it. But in verse 9, that kind of complaining, bitter like somewhat complaining, but more bitter attitude that his wife was encouraging him toward. He rebuffed it at first, but we'll say, we will see rather in chapter three, whoa, Job. I mean, it takes our breath away reading what you're saying here. Job, how, how, wow. And his friends, of course, are silent. We'll read about this in just a moment. Job passed the test. He, he does not sin at any point in this regard. He speaks words without knowledge. We'll see that later in chapter Uh, 40 and 42, when God responds to him. But he does not sin with his lips, right? That's the the last phrase of chapter 10, verse 10, rather. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He's speaking what is true. But as he was thinking about it, over the course of days and weeks and perhaps months, from verse 10 to verse 11, a lot of time has passed. His friends that aren't local friends have heard about this thing, and they coordinate with each other, and they come and meet with Job. So the point is, there's some time that has passed, and where do we find Job? Still sitting in the ash heap, still 
terrible boils all over his body. I mean, where can he find a place to, to find comfort? He can't sit down. He can't lie down. He couldn't even you know, stand on his head, uh, standing on his feet. That doesn't work. I mean, every aspect of his life is, is touched with this thing. And he's in the midst of this. And people, through the course of, of Job's narrative, he'll tell, you know, he's a laughingstock to people, people that used to, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, allow their, their fathers to go tend his sheep. Now they're laughing at him. They're mocking him. They're scorning him. He used to be the, the man, right? He was the most important, best guy in the whole region of the East. And now he's, he's discarded, like, like refuse, like a broken piece of pottery. There he is. There's Job, <laughs> you know, and all this. And so... This weight that he's experienced of certainly the, the withdrawal or the loss of all things, external, you know, livestock and his children, by the way, then his reputation, his, his own health, all these things are weighing on him. And he's, he's saying, I, I don't understand. I don't get this. In fact, one of the key questions in chapter three, we'll get to it very soon, is why? Why? Why is this going on? But first we need to re- meet rather these f- three friends. And verse 11 these, excuse me, then Job's three friends heard of all this calamity that had come upon him. So they came, each one of them, from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, there we go. And they made an appointment together to come to console him and comfort him. Then they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Just briefly, verse 11 says, these three friends heard and they came from each one from their own place. They're not local neighbors of Job. They're they're coming from a distance. We see them, their locations listed here in just a moment. But these people heard about all the calamity, all the, whoa, that is devastating, our friend Job, right? these are friends, these are, these are companions, these are close associates of, of Job somehow, whether in business dealings or in travels or in, in, a, in some measure of, of, of uh, situation, they were known to each other. Having this word friends, and, and Job uses this word friends repeatedly through his, his uh, discussion, his speeches, all these different things we'll see beginning in chapter three, well, chapter four, really. Uh, these, this conversation they have kind of not to each other, but at each other. Uh, these friends, a friend is supposed to be one who is faithful, someone who is uh, marked by loving kindness or compassion, mercy toward one another. And Job says, wow, I mean, essentially with friends like you, who needs enemies? You know, you guys come, you're, you're, you say you want to console me and comfort me and, and bring me relief. You don't bring any, you make my troubles worse. It'd just be better if you just shut your mouths. And we'll see this repeatedly throughout the, the discussion. Whereas a friend ought to be marked by loving kindness, these people are not bar- marked by it. Did they come with good intentions? It seems like it, just on, on first reading of this, it seems like they came with a, an intention to comfort and console him. And yet by the time you get to, well, through all the different speeches and so forth, they're not, they're not really aiming for that. And you, there may be some reasons for that that we'll, we'll consider. Job's three friends, so not just one or two, all three of them, and it's not to say that Job only had three friends, you know, he had these three and they came. And, and what does that mean? It shows at least that they are concerned, whether for Job or for other situations, but concerned at this, at this point with, with Job and his, all the calamity that has come upon him, all the bad, evil things, and who wants to endure all these things? So they came, each one of them, from, 
from their own place. Verse 11 goes on and lists them. This guy named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. We'll consider more about their, their, their different uh, thoughts and how they approach the issue in chapter 4. We'll introduce that idea. But here we meet these people. A basic idea is these are not Israelites. These are not Jewish people. Uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, Shuhite, uh, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar, these are not Israelite or Hebrew names. Um, they're probably, if we take Job being a resident of Edom, uh, on the map over there, Edom is, is just south of the Dead Sea, the, the, the lake or the, the sea in the lower corner of that map. On the east side or the right side of that Dead Sea is the region of Edom. Now, it wasn't called Edom yet. In fact, it goes back to when did Job happen? Was it in time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Won't get into all that, but the point is these are not Hebrews. Uh, these are not folks that have a knowledge of Yahweh so much. They have a knowledge of God, and they, always, they all talk about God, but only Job is the one who uses Yahweh's name in the whole, whole book. Now, it's mentioned in the narrative section the, where the narrator talks about Yahweh, but when Job is speaking, he's the only one that uses the name of Yahweh in the course of his, of his speeches. But they came with a, a sense, an understanding of, of a God, uh, one who is over all things, who is, is uh, sovereign over all things, who is just and holy and, all, and everything. And so they, they base their appeal on that. But Job is really the only one who knows Yahweh by name. Notice it says here, they made an appointment together. So they agreed. Hey, let's, you know, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, let's, let's come together at this, at this point. We're going to meet on the third Tuesday or whatever. Uh, and they have to travel from a distance perhaps. And here they come to jointly bring comfort and consolation to him. Consolation and comfort are, are somewhat of, of duplicate ideas. But it has to do with relieving distress, relieving pain, relieving anxieties. Um, it is uh, helping to, to, show <clears throat> uh, to show grief toward one another and to, to share in that moment. This is a hard time. These calamities, oh, they, you know, we wouldn't wish this on, on our, our most uh, severe enemy. And yet, Job, you're enduring all these things. And, and of course, they have solutions that they'll offer to, to Job here in just a moment. But they have... The, the intention, anyway, on the face of it, seems like they intended to alleviate or, or mitigate, make small the grief that Job was experiencing. They were there to comfort him. So not just in their presence, which is a very important thing if you're trying to comfort somebody, to be present with them, but also then to speak. And notice it says they didn't speak a word to him for seven days and seven nights, but they came with the intention to speak, with the intention to verbally, uh, actively uh, try to show sorrow and, and uh, comfort to him. And so we will take it, you know, again, on the face of it, they came with good intentions. They came with, with a desire to help him. Well, how did they come? How did they arrive? Verse 12 says they lifted up their eyes at a distance. They were coming in, maybe on camel, you know, camels for transportation, maybe donkeys, whatever. They lifted up their eyes, so they, they looked off and they, they saw in the distance a figure. They did not recognize him. Now, there are two different ways we can understand this idea of recognize. They didn't, you know, looking on it, they say, can that be? Is that really Job? I mean, what, what would indicate that is the man that we've known, the greatest of the sons of the East, this one who was rich beyond measure. I mean, not all these, this stuff. And now he's sitting in an ash heap. I think that's, that's, the, that's the garbage pile outside the city. What's he doing sitting out? That can't be Job. Who, what other maniac would go sit out there? So it could have this idea of they just didn't recognize him. I can't believe my eyes kind of thing. I, I, I think that's Job, but no way. That couldn't be Job. There's another sense in which this idea of not recognizing him could be in the sense of 
regarding him or showing esteem for him uh, to recognize or take note of in the, in the sense of, you know, we honor Job. They didn't honor him in this regard. Uh, for example, this, this idea um, of showing partiality, this idea of, of not recognizing is the idea of showing partiality, that they show favoritism to, that they said, well, we, we can't associate ourselves too closely with, with Job because, you know, it's kind of like taking a step away. He's, he's the one that's getting hit by lightning all this time. I mean, who would have thought? I mean, all the ways that he's been, has calamity befallen him. We're going to come, but we're going to stand at a distance because we don't want to associate ourselves with Job too closely. Uh, this idea of um, recognizing him, or uh, it's even the idea in Isaiah 52 and 53, when Christ, when Messiah comes, and his people didn't, didn't recognize him. He didn't have a stately form or majesty that we should consider him or recognize him and they, or take notice of him. They didn't do it. Do you remember in Ruth, this is used a couple times, Ruth, when she was uh, being introduced to Boaz and, and gleaning in his fields and so forth, and she asked him, this is Ruth 2 in verse 10, why have I, Ruth says, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me or recognize me, though I'm a mere foreigner? And then verse 19, uh, her mother-in-law, Nomi, said, may he who took notice of you be blessed. So it's not just recognizing, who, who's that person? Oh, that's Ruth. But recognizing in the sense of blessing and showing esteem and regarding and, and having a, an association with that obviously by the end of Ruth is a marriage association. So tremendous recognition there. But these people, whether they didn't believe their eyes that that's Job or whether they said, I know that's Job, but we got to be careful, guys, right? we got to be careful associating too closely with him because he obviously is a sinner. I mean, bad things only happen to bad people, right? Is how they're going to approach this. But that's not true, right? The opening verse of the book is, there's a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. There's no impingement or impugning, impugning of his character from the beginning, and God himself reaffirms that twice, that he is the same man. And so their solutions are, are not right. Their conclusions are not right even. But notice how they came. They lifted up their voices and wept. They lifted up their voices. They were crying out. Weeping doesn't have the idea of tears in this, this sense. It's not that they were just, you know, their eyes were gushing. They were yelling, essentially screaming because of this thing. I mean, just wailing out there. You've heard different situations of wailing, of just an expression of mourning and great distress. That's what they were doing, lifting up their voices. Meanwhile, Job is over here. We haven't heard from him yet in this context. Anyway, the last words we heard were, Shall we not accept, or should we accept good only from God and not accept adversity? That's what he said. Over the course of the weeks, days, weeks, months that have passed since that time, what is Job doing? We're going to see in chapter 3, very quickly, that he also is groaning. He is sighing, not a heavy sigh, but a, a, a crying out to God, a moaning with, with great intensity. We'll see some examples of that. So is Job silent or is Job moaning, grieving over his sin. I mean, this has been a long time that he's had these issues. This question is, do, do the actions of the friends balance out what Job has experienced, or do they come in and they just, you know, all this hustle and bustle, and they're doing all these things, tearing the th- throwing the ash up in the air, and, and moaning and, and screaming? Is it contrary to what Job is experiencing, experiencing and demonstrating, or is it right in line with him? If we go from what we read about in, in earlier in the chapter, probably it's out of character, out of 
it doesn't follow what Job is doing. But if we read Job's comments, he's probably loud. He's, he's sitting in the ash heap. It's not good. These are evidences of mourning. This is an evidence of identifying, thinking, or regarding Job as already dead. They didn't figure this was going to be a sickness that resulted in life. They see this guy. And even if he did get healed from his boils, what does he have to look forward to? There's no wealth. Even his wife has turned away from him. You know, curse God and die. You know, what kind of a life does he have? Better for you just to die. Now, they say opposite here in a little bit, but the idea is they are recognizing he's as good as dead. We're here kind of in an advanced mourning period for him, for his, for his funeral. And so this, you know, sitting on the, in the dust, on the ground, uh, here in verse uh, 13, they sat on the ground with him for seven days. They're sitting, you know, the, 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 the tearing of the robes, the ash on the head, the sitting on the ground, all these are evidences of funerary rites, you know, death stuff. They're, they're saying, Job, you're dead. And even not recognizing him, again, could be that idea, that idea. Not just knowing, oh, that, I think that's Job, but it doesn't look like it. He's changed a lot. Or the idea is, that is a dead man. Let's not touch him. Let's be careful. And not speaking to him. No one speaking a word to him for seven days and seven nights. Now, in some regards, that is good. You want to listen. But in other regards, do you have any word of comfort, any consolation that you could offer to him? Any words of, of uh, anything? They didn't. They were waiting for him to speak. And that's exactly what we see in, in chapter 3. No one spoke a word to him. Did they speak to themselves? For seven days and seven nights. doesn't say anything about food or water during this time. They were there mourning for Job and perhaps mourning for themselves, recognizing, whoa, if this could happen to Job, we guys better be careful too. And we want to, to be uh, on God's right terms, so we need to do all these things and, and, uh, and so forth. Last phrase here says, they saw that his pain was great. The pain, the physical pain, definitely, it's bit, ah, the ouchness factor of his uh, calamities that had befallen him, but also the, the economic certain uncertainties, the relational uh, uncertainties, the loss of his family, the, ch- the 10 children that were killed all of a sudden, the, the number of servants that were killed also in the course of these calamities, they saw his pain, physical and otherwise, was very great indeed. And so they were, again, you know, how, do we, how do we approach this? This helps us in our day and age too when we either face calamity or try to help pe- people in that, that you've heard the, the phrase, the ministry of presence can be helpful just being with people, just visiting and, and you know, physical touch, words of encouragement, those kinds of things can be helpful but also listening ears and not trying to solve the problem. And this is what the counselors, the friends, end up doing. They say, oh, here's the solution. Job, this is the reason you're, you're doing it, and this is the solution. Just do it. And why do you do it? Job, do it. Come on. Job, this is the problem. This is the solution. Why are you not, why can you not see? And Job says, no, it's not that simple. I am a man of integrity. I'm a man blameless. There's not a reason why God should judge me in this regard. We'll see how that goes along. The point is, his pain was very great. His mental, working through these things, what have I done wrong? You remember his fastidiousness about his children when they had their feast, their festivals, and he said, perhaps one of my children had cursed God in their hearts. Not just in their practice, you know, all this stuff, but in their hearts they somehow may have thought an impure, improper thought about God, and he would offer sacrifices. Very careful, very conscientious a man for uh, sacredness. Well, 
Thus ends, by the way, our verse-by-verse study of the book of Job. I'm not going to say I'm going to summarize the whole thing, but we're going to take chapters now, if you don't mind. So chapter 3 is Job's lament. I'm not even going to read everything. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to point out a few uh, key ideas in in this section. This is Job's lament. This is how he breaks the silence. After seven days, seven nights of his friends being present in him, with him rather, but after who knows how long, from the time of that first messenger come, you know, that came back in verse 14 of chapter 1, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys and the Sabians came and took them and slew all the servants and all the other servants that came, the messengers came. From that time, we don't know how long has transpired, but we do know that Job breaks the silence here as he did before with wonderful sayings about, you know, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, but here in chapter 3, he gives full vent to his bitterness, the anguish of his soul, the passion that he has in his life. And one person, well, we'll get to that idea in just a moment. His lament is here. And I'll show, it, I'll show you a, a breakdown of how he builds his argument here. He says, I wish I was never born. I wish I had never entered this world. Verses 3 through 10. Why didn't I die at birth? So not just why I was ever born. Why didn't I, I just die right then? Why didn't I die then? And then finally, why am I still alive? What's the, I mean, you get the, the gist of his, of his comments. I don't want to live. It's not, I can't stand this. This is unbearable. And not just the pain. God, what is going on here? What is, what is going on? And so, again, going back to uh, verses 3 through 10, his idea, his, his wish that he had never been born. Some key ideas through this, this text. He, you get the, the basic idea in verse 1. It says, he cursed the day of his birth. He cursed his day. Remember how the, the sons and daughters would get together on their day? Well, probably, it's the same phrase here. Uh, Job cursed his day. Probably the day of his birth, probably the day of his, of his entering into the world, entering into his mother's arms and so forth. And so he says, you know, I wish I was never born. And he, he gives, you know, he speaks very poetically. Again, one of the aspects in this section, this middle section, which is a large section, of course, in, in Job. But one of the, the characteristics of this, it's written in Hebrew poetry. Not that it rhymes. When you, you're looking for rhyming stuff. It's not the words that rhyme. <clears throat> It's the thoughts that rhyme. So you see, for example, verse 3, let the day perish in which I was born and the night which said a man is conceived. So you're, you're, you're having parallel or rhyming thoughts, day and night, and then the ideas of being born and being conceived. Those aren't necessarily two separate actions or events, uh, be, conceiving and, and uh, being born or uh, conceived and gave birth to are often tied together very, very closely in the, in the scripture. Even though we might put nine months between the, the, the events, in, in this respect, I think he's saying the whole beginning process of my life. I wish I was just never born to begin with, and yet here I am. So he says, that happens a lot in, in, the, in the Genesis record, that this conception and, and birth process. He says, may that day be darkness. Let God not seek it out from above. Just don't want any light. Don't, don't put, just cover it in darkness. And throughout this little section. He has, I think, four or five different terms for darkness that he uses to 
to show his disdain of, of that even that day would come to light. He talks about darkness. He talks about the shadow of death or to have a cloud. If, if that can't happen, a celestial, at least can we have a cloud cover over this thing? So at least it's in shadow. I want blackness of the day over these things. I want thick darkness covering my, the day of my birth and just night. I want night. I don't want anything. Don't bring this to light. Just cover it over. I wish I had never been born. He says, uh, these are verses 4 and 5 and into 6, that let that, uh, as for that night, let thick darkness take it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. I just, you know, forget about my day. I wish I could never, never have it again. Now, some of us have that day. You know, we don't celebrate our birthdays anymore because of whatever age. And just enjoy your age, you know, what God gives it to you. But he says, forget about the even beginning of it. I don't want it. Cancel it out. Just Big, put a big X mark over it. If we could just skip from the second of the month to the fourth of the month, if he was born on the third, I don't know. Uh, just skip right over it. Don't want it. Uh, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Uh, he says, um, he even wants in verse 8, let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to rouse Leviathan. We'll meet Leviathan in chapter 41, and God speaks about him. Leviathan is a beast, not necessarily a fanciful or made-up beast, but a real beast that has connections with the sea. It's often talked about as a sea creature, a sea monster. It also has some connection with the desert. Uh, We'll look at it more carefully when we get to chapter uh, 41. But he says those who would, would try to rouse Leviathan, Leviathan being both a, a beast, an animal, but also one who symbolizes death and destruction and darkness and calamity and everything that's animated against God, I mean, the mightiest of the creatures animated against God. Job says, I want him on my side to destroy my, the day of my birth. I, you know, anything, supernatural even, those who, the sorcerers, the magicians, the conjurers even, he calls on those, those who... Uh, let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to rouse Leviathan. The people that would try to take Leviathan in his arms and, and do a, a work with him. And God eventually says, you think you can handle Leviathan, do you? Let me tell you about him. And God essentially says, you don't have any authority over him. I do, however. He's a created being, just like everybody else. And he does my will. Job, you do my will. You don't try to get out from under my authority. He talks about the stars of twilight, verse 9. Uh, being darkened and the hope for light uh, they let it hope for light but have none the stars of its twilight the stars of early morning time which are not stars in our modern kind of a sense they're venus and uh, mercury that are that show up in the in the uh, when the uh, well over there in the east when they when the sun is coming up because they're the closest planets to the sun they come up with the sun and so when they appear we know that Morning, daylight is, is closed. And he says, no, cover those stars up, those planets. We don't want them. Let it hope for light, but have none. Because that's what Job feels. He is just expressing what is on his heart over the course of this, this, uh, these calamities that is going on. Verse 11, again, goes into this other idea. I, you know, verse 3 through 10, I wish I was never born. And then, okay, if I was born, why didn't I die right then? Why didn't I die at birth? Verse 11 says, why did I not die from the womb, come forth from the womb, and breathe my last? Why didn't, I, why didn't God slay me right then? Verse 12 has the idea of uh, the question, why did the knees receive me, and why uh, the breast that I should suck? This is the idea of, okay, the, the baby's been born. You're holding it kind of at arm's length, saying, okay, what's about this baby? But then you embrace it. You bring it right close. He says, I don't want any of that. I don't want to be coddled or, or, or put on the knees. I don't want that. Certainly not brought near. Why don't I just die right at the get-go and just 
thrown away with all the other garbage and trash. Man, that's how I feel. This is how he feels. And his expectation in verse three is verse thirteen rather is at that time if I had died at that at birth that I would have lain down. Four different ways he talks about rest or quietness. Verse uh, 13. I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then and it would have been rest to me. He's expecting Sheol or death to be a a rest, a refuge, a time of just take a breath. I mean, just enjoy, not life, but death. Enjoy that quietness. Uh, Again, this idea of of, uh, quietness or rest, he will repeat at the end of the chapter, verse 46. And he says, I'm not complacent. I'm not at rest. I'm not quiet. I'm not at rest. Third idea. And positively, raging comes. I mean, just this animation toward anger and, and bitterness. and ah. So he's hoping for the rest. He thinks, he thinks okay, at least in death there's quietness. And he gives some examples. In uh, verse 14, with kings, with counselors of the earth who rebuilt waste places for themselves and, or with princes who had gold. So he lists these three different characteristics of, or, or types of people, kings and counselors and princes. These are the top-notch people, right? These are the, the nobility. They're the ones who are on top. They're the great people of the earth. He says, look, death is the great equalizer. People who had a great experience in life, they're dead. I want what they have. And he's going to list some people who are on the bottom level of life here in just a moment. But he says, look, these are, these are um, kings and counselors of the earth. And this phrase, who rebuilt waste places for themselves, uh, it's kind of hard to understand. A lot, of, a lot of text in Job is a little bit, I wouldn't say eccentric, but it, it's, it's hard to get the, the idea into English sometimes. We, a lot of the words are only used once. And so, okay, how, how do you use in that, Job? We don't understand. Uh, how this is working. But here, uh, another way to understand this phrase, well, this way. They rebuilt waste places. You know how a lot of people, well, Saddam Hussein in in Iraq, he was rebuilding Babylon, right? It was a waste place. It was a desolated place, but he's going to rebuild it for his own glory, right? So it could be that idea. You know, this was an ancient place of, of great renown. It's now lying in ruins, and these kings restore it to its former splendor. Or the idea could be, Hey, you know, these kings, they built places for themselves, but now they're ruins. You know, they had this great thing going, and now they, they're dead, and the thing's falling apart. So it could be different ideas there. But he, he lists kings and counselors and princes. These are just the, the high nobles uh, who are filling their houses with silver, whether they, in this life, they were, you know, living high on the hog, or that they put silver into their tombs, expecting that to be useful in the future life. Again, we're not exactly sure how to understand that. He says, again, verse 16, why was it not like a miscarriage hidden away and as infants that never saw light? Why, you know, why does that die as an as a infant, as a newborn babe? But then he says, uh, verse 17 and following, not just the high people, the great people, now he says the low people, the wicked cease from raging and the weary of strength are at rest. The prisoner is at ease together and do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the greater there and the slave is free from his master. He's hoping for quiet. He's hoping for the rest, the, just the free from strife, free from calamity. Just stop it. I don't want that anymore. Look, the kings are there, the, the taskmasters, the slaves, the, the uh, prisoners even, whether prisoners of war or prisoners for, for uh, legal purposes, whatever. But they don't hear the voice of the taskmaster. Hey, do this, do that, you know, all this. They're free from these things. 
And so he asked the question, you know, death is better than life. When you're in this kind of situation, in this calamity, ah, oh, just death. I wish I was never born. Well, since I'm born, right, here I am. Now, why didn't I die back then? But then he gets to this last idea. Why am I still alive? Why is light given to the him who is troubled and life to the bitter of soul? Verse 20. Again, that Hebrew parallelism, light and life, rhyme, right? Those ideas. And then him who is trouble, troubled and the bitter of soul. Basic, uh, same, same ideas there. That why, why do we have light? He's asking for darkness, right? Why, why, is, why is not darkness coming upon me? And upon the day of my birth, why does it have to be light and life and healing and joy and all those things that should be part of the day, but it's not. My days are wearisome. I am troubled. I am bitter in my soul. Why is light given? Do you remember how he said earlier, uh, Yahweh has given, Yahweh has taken away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. Here he says light is given. He doesn't say it's from God, but he assumes it is. Why? So the question is not just why are these things happening in this world, but why is God doing this to me? Why is God upholding my life? Why is light given by God to me? I am so distressed. I'm so troubled. I'm so bitter in my soul. Verse 21 says, and he, he kind of makes it third party. Those people over there, they long for death, but there is none. They dig for it more than for hidden treasures. There's that time coming in Revelation when the wrath of God comes upon the, the evil people in that day, and they yearn, they long for death, but they cannot, cannot come. They long for death, but there's none. They dig for it more than for hidden treasure. When you're, you're looking for death in all the wrong places, if you don't mind the, the thing, they're, they're, they have this great motivation. These are, these are great treasures. Death is a treasure. No, life is what God intends for us. These are people, verse 22, they're glad with joy and they rejoice when they find the grave. I mean, usually the grave is a time of mourning and despair and sadness, but they say, oh, good, we're dead. And there's rest for my soul. Do you remember how Satan had the accusation, God, you put a hedge around him. You, you protected him. You have blessed him every which way. And now Job says, yeah, he's hedged me in all right, but he has hedged me in for imprisonment and uh, separation from people, loneliness. I just have this great, uh, tremendous hedge about me that is not a good thing. It is, it is something that is confining me and bringing me restrictions. It's, it's trapping me in not good things, despair and pain and calamity, all these things. Uh, chapter 19, verse 8, he'll say, he, God, has walled up my way. He's put a hedge so that I cannot pass. He has put darkness on my paths. So he says, look, you, you have hedged me in and all these things. I can't find a way out. I don't, know how, I don't have any hope. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing I look forward to. The only thing I look forward to is backwards, hoping that I, wishing, yearning that I had died then. Verse 23 mentions again, this man whose way is hidden. The way is the his course of his life and it's hidden. Looking forward, he doesn't see anything good. He doesn't see any which way that he can recover his sheep, his oxen, his camels, his children. His children are dead. What kind of thing, what kind of life does he have to look forward to? His way is hidden. The way forward is hidden. He doesn't, it's darkness. Can't even, you know, reach out and try to grope forward. Why? Why? Verse 24, again, kind of hard to understand. 
my, my groaning comes at the sight of my food and my roaring pours out like water. You know, bread and water. The food is the word bread. And he says, you know, bread and water. I don't take any delight in that. When it comes to me, I, just, I can't stand it. I can't stomach it. And I just cry out. So again, the idea is that, okay, his friends were crying out too. Is Job crying out here? He says he is. He's, he's roaring like a lion. Similar. There's another word that talks about roaring of a lion. But, but here he says, I'm, I'm loud. I'm, I'm yelling out. He talks about, yes, uh, my groaning. Verse 24 says, my groaning. This is the word sighing. This is the same word that the Israelites, uh, same word that describes the actions of the Israelites when they were groaning because of their slavery in Egypt. I mean, not, a, not a heavy sigh kind of thing, but a, ah, God, rescue me, deliver me kind of a thing. Crying out, groaning, roaring. He says, verse 25, for the day that I dread comes upon me and what I'm afraid of befalls me. There could be the idea that, you know, Job always had in the back of his mind, even before his calamities came, you know, things are pretty good around here, but, oh, wouldn't it be horrible if I lost all this stuff? You know, I have so many people, so many employees, right, servants, but people working for me, I, I, I provide for them. Wouldn't it be horrible? You know, his dread would be that that would be taken away. My children, in whom is my delight, right, back in, in chapter 1, chapter 2, uh, well, chapter 1 specifically, talks about the, the death of his children. They're gone, you know, that's what I dreaded. Oh, God, you can strike me, but my children, protect my children. He said, the things that I, I dreaded, it, it's happened. It has come upon me. This idea is repeated. It has come upon me. It has befallen me. What I'm afraid of, here it is. It's my worst nightmare realized. And verse 26 then, I'm not complacent. I'm not happy. I'm not, you know, happy camper, that kind of thing. I, this is horrible to me. And I'm not quiet. He's, he's raging. He's, he's giving voice to his, the bitterness of his soul. He's not at rest. He's not at peace. He's not you know, taking his ease. And then, so three knots, right? I'm not complacent, not quiet, not at rest. And then positively he says, raging comes. Just this, this restlessness, this shaking with anger even that he has going on. Uh, do you remember when the, uh, in Daniel 3, when Nebuchadnezzar has this big golden thing over here and everybody bows down, worships it, except those three guys. And you remember how Nebuchadnezzar shook with rage at their, at their insolence, at their just, how dare you not do it? And he threw them into the fire. Oh, that's the kind of raging that Job is experiencing. He is restless to act. Uh, verse uh, 17 here, verse chapter 3 says, the wicked cease from raging. There's no more, you know, like Proverbs uh, one, I guess it says, you know, they plot evil in their beds. They just can't wait to wake up to cause more evil. It's always just restless to do evil, uh, restless to do something. Job says, I am, I'm raging. I, I've got to do something, but I don't know what to do. There's nothing really available to me. My friends are forsaken me. My brothers and sisters, they're absent. We don't meet them until chapter 42. After his fortunes had turned, oh, his brothers and sisters show up. Isn't that kind of nice? To comfort and console him. And they bring him a little trinket to, to show their love. But he, he's just, has nothing. And he is trembling he is agitated he is restless from just the trouble the turmoil he has going on in his life is this a godly man is this a godly man's picture the question is you know we we want to have self-control in all things as a fruit of the spirit we you know the man who controls his spirit is better than he rules or conquers a city yes is it wrong for christians to speak thusly there's one commentator that talked about a pallid piety that we often think, well, self-control means that you're just always even-keeled and you don't let anything disturb you. 
Well, there's a, there's a point at which, yeah, that's true. But you know, when things are, are bad, God is not challenged by our words. He's not challenged by even the, the why, not questioning the, 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 the character of God, but saying, I don't understand this. Help me understand what's going on. And basically his plea, we'll get to it. Chapter three is just venting the bitterness of his soul, right? And it kind of takes his friends, whoa, we didn't realize things were this bad which leads us into chapter 4, Eliphaz saying, you know, if, if someone tries to talk with you, will you become weary? Can you stand it? I mean, you, all this, you, wow, you just unloaded a dump truck on us and we don't know what to do, how to speak. Job is responding in the bitterness of his soul, as you would read King David in his righteous moments, crying out to the Lord, God, rise up and deliver me. Why are you sleeping? Why are you not awake? Do you not know what I'm going through? Do you not know my enemies are surrounding me? God, are you going to act now or do I have to wait? And so David even in the, in the Psalms speaks with not an arrogance, not an not a impiety, not a godless kind of a thing. Always speaking, God, if you're not for me, if, you're not, if you don't come to my aid, I've got nothing. There's nothing that, that is here uh, available for me to find refuge and strength in. It is not a sin to speak in these harsh words. In fact, one, one commentator said this, these are the harshest words, harshest words Job utters against himself in the entire book. They startle us. The friends too are shocked. They fear that his faith in God has mel- uh, melted into distrust. Why would one who refused to curse God be so hostile toward his own life? The contrast between the Job of the prologue, chapters one and two, and the Job of the poem here in verse three, chapter 3 rather, could not be sharper. The former Job did not sin or charge God with wrong, but this Job verbalizes his bitterest feelings. But he goes on and says, Did Job sin in uttering curse on his own life? Since life is God's greatest gift to a human being, now parenthetically, eternal life, you know, coming into existence, yes, but eternal life, knowing Christ, having the forgiveness, that's the greatest gift. So we get, you know, put that, those two ideas together. Uh, then a curse on life would only be to would not only deny that, he, that gift, but would also speak against God himself, finding fault with God. But if Job had sinned in his first speech, there'd be no debate. His frequent claims of innocence would be sheer mock, uh, mockeries. Though Job approaches the brink of cursing God, he does not. Instead, he vents the venom of his anguish by wishing that he were dead. He survives his darkest hours uh, since he neither curses God nor takes his fate into his own hands. By the way, I didn't mention that. Suicidal thoughts are not part of his ideas. He's saying, God, if you had just killed me then or kill me now, but he doesn't take matters into his own hands. He's got a potsherd, and I'm sure there are other ones around that he could have started doing all kinds of things to, to you know, die a, a, a bloodless or no more blood in his body, I guess is the idea. He could have committed suicide, but it was never his thought, never, never entered his mind. God, life and death are in your hands. So he never had that idea. Last verse I'm going to read without comment. God help me. In, in Psalm 73, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. Kind of like what we see with Job here. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will lead me and afterward take me into glory. Read all of, seven, of Psalm 73 and see how Asaph struggled with kind of a different pattern, but came to the same conclusion. God... You're my only refuge. You're my portion. You're my hope. You will receive me into glory. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the the life of Job. Wow. He voices the the extreme bitterness of his soul. He puts full vent to his 
situation, how the calamities that have befallen him, and yet does not curse you. He curses his own day. He says, I wish I was dead. I want to curse God. God is good. God is gracious. God is the one who gives good gifts. But man, I am beyond hope, is what Job was saying. We thank you that you are sufficient for him. You were sufficient. You're sufficient for us and our groanings, our moanings, our sighings, things that we just, we don't understand. Why is this happening? Why did that happen? Why things that will happen this week that we don't understand? We But help us to realize you are good. You're in the heavens. You do whatever you please. And that is a good thing because everything you do is according to the kind intention of your will. Thank you for Job's life. Thank you for his uh, uh, intense and sincere trust in you. He didn't understand. He was confused in, uh, in so many respects. And yet, in the end, he gave glory to you and proved that you are right. And everything you do is right and good. Please help us to have that same attitude and expectation that you'd be glorified in all things, even especially in our lives. Please help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.